1: Welcome back. Uh, We have been talking about the Liberal government taking the Speaker of the House of Commons to court uh, to stop him from trying to get documents relating to the firing of the two scientists. And the issue is allegedly transfer, unauthorized transfer of intellectual property to China. But let's talk about China in general. There was a lot of optimism when Joe Biden was elected that maybe he would help us with the situation of the two Michaels. And uh, there have been, uh, they've had a, a, a couple of uh, consular access, but it looks, I don't know, um, what do you make of where we're at on that, Mel Cap? Um,
2: Libby, just before I do that, I want to, um, come back to the previous issue and mm-hmm. come back to China in a sec. The, the supremacy of parliament point that, uh, Philippe made is, is an important one. Uh, and I agree with that principle, and it's a foundation of Westminster parliamentary democracy. But Parliament has spoken in the Canada Evidence Act that they created a regime to limit access to information, and in the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliament Act, Parliamentarians Act, which uh, created a, a, parla, a group of parliamentarians who could look at the secrets. The whole regime of protecting secrecy has in mind uh, our relations with China uh, and other countries. So that even though a fundamental principle of our uh, democracy is uh, access to a fair trial, the Section 38 limits a criminal uh, prosecution to have access to, as Stephanie mentioned, sources and methods. Uh, so we have a regime which protects this. It was upheld at the Supreme Court as legitimate, and we should be happy with it. Turning to China, this is exactly the kind of problem that, uh, a sticky wicket, a sticky problem, uh, a wicked problem, that um, we have to uh, recognize trades off a whole range of different objectives. So we want to maintain uh, the good, uh, we want to respect our uh, treaty with the United States uh, on the issue of uh, sending um, people under uh, uh, suspicion of uh, prosecution to the United States, as Ms. Meng is, uh, and we uh, respect their uh, trial system, uh, and we want to deal with uh, two Canadians who are being held and uh, in China and get them back. We We may have to trade that off. I certainly hope we don't have to. I hope that there's a way of uh, bringing home um, Kovrig and Spavor in a way that uh, doesn't force us to violate our principles and release Ms. Meng, or worse, um, send her back to China. Uh, the, the, uh, we, have, we believe in the rule of law. These two issues are highly related. We believe in the rule of law. There are laws to protect secrets, and we have laws uh, that protect uh, uh, the issue of, uh, uh, of people who are suspected of violating laws abroad. And we're going to uh, try to respect all of those
1: principles. Uh, Dr. Carvin, it hasn't, so far. <laughs> no, it hasn't worked so far. Unfortunately, yeah,
3: I mean,
1: there was some hope, I, you
3: know, when the initial meetings between um, the Secretary of State and his equivalent, uh, Chinese equivalent. And there had been some discussion about maybe there would be some kind of deal whereby Ms. Meng would admit to some kind of wrongdoing, um, pay some kind of penalty, go back to China, and then two to three months later we would have the two Michaels come back. I mean, I think that was kind of the ideal quickest solution that, you know, everyone could save some kind of face. That doesn't seem to be happening, and that's really unfortunate. Um, and and yeah, I mean, there just unfortunately there just doesn't really seem to be a lot that Canada can do by itself. And so, you know, the next question is: Are there further steps we can take that you know would basically withstand, um, you know, that will you know where we wouldn't pay too high of a price? Because you know, the problem is, if you punch China, they'll punch you back twice as hard. And that's something we always have to remember
1: as a middle power. Um. Dr. Lagasse, are are we too soft on China?
4: Well, it's difficult for me to say. I mean, I personally would take a harder stance on a number of areas simply because um, I find that, you know, and I, I'm going to say this in, in a pretty colloquial way. I mean, this is a power that, that acts like a bully a lot of the time. Uh, and frankly... I'm proud of it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's kind of their approach to it, uh, to, to international affairs, and the, the expectation that they are owed a certain degree of, of respect and deference, even in matters that we would otherwise uh, expect a, a very different type of behavior on the part of an emerging superpower, frankly. Uh, and here, though, I, I, I agree with my two colleagues that the, the principle that we have to adhere to here is the rule of law, uh, and that, that is the only way that we can stand up to these types of erosions of the international system that has existed since uh, the Second World War. Now, you know what that means in this particular case, I think Canada has to stay, unfortunately, stay the course in spite of the fact that it does not seem to be producing the results that we may have hoped.
1: Hmm. Uh, is there any chance that these two things might be related? Does anybody have a thought on that? I I would say that, I mean, look, when it
3: comes to, like, we don't have a China problem. We have a China strategy problem, right? So, yeah, in some ways, a lot of this, it really is related. Like, you know, there's a lot of disparate issues here. And the problem is Canada has not really taken or decided upon a strategy on how it wants to engage with China. it seems to, We seem to believe that we can, you know, critique their human rights, but also do business with them and kind of treat them as a partner, but then also treat them as a strategic rival. And that's a real problem. So until the government actually comes up with some kind of strategy, I think we're going to keep stumbling into these problems. Um, we, we do really need to take this more seriously. I agree um, with, you know, Phil and, and Mr. Cap that um, this is really an issue where, Um, You know, China is a bully, and we just don't seem to know what to do. It's a bit like a deer caught in headlights.
2: Uh, Libby, I I would just uh, urge us to keep our eyes on the long run. If China is successful in this kidnapping of these two Michaels, think about what the implications are for all the other Canadians who go to China for business, for family relations, for any other purpose. They subject themselves to then being put at the mercy of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, not just the Chinese government. And therefore, um, we have to be careful in how we deal with this, that we aren't going to uh, let them be successful in uh, holding uh, diplomatic hostages.
1: Yeah, but they are successful. It's already, I, I didn't look at the count today, but it's over 900 days. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, uh, I I think, that, uh, people who are going to China, I, I mean, I don't think there is anybody who discounts it now, because even if they are released now and, and, you know, God knows we hope they are, they, they've still been in terrible conditions for a very long time, Stephanie. Indeed.
3: So yeah, I think that's correct. Um, you know, there's no disputing they've been there for a long time. I'm thinking, wow, these guys are going to be there for well over a thousand days, probably, and I can't even imagine what that would be like if that was a member of my family. But um, you know, so my heart does go out to them. But to support what Mr. Cap was saying, I think the issue is here is that, like, look, if we kind of give in to what China wants, if we return um, Ms. Meng without any criminal mm-hmm. charges the very next time there's any kind of tension or if we take any kind of action against a company like Huawei and China's response is to kidnap Canadian citizens knowing that it's going to get its way by violating the rule of law, that's a real problem for not just us, but I would say other countries in the world. So, you know, know, we have to, you know, make sure that we're reaching out to our allies. that our allies, you know, we've now um, very successfully actually signed a convention against kind of this illegal kind of diplomatic kidnapping. And I think that was an important step for Canada to lead and, and to to try and emphasize, because really that's the only way we're gonna get out of this. If all you know, all the other countries in the world say, you know what, when you kidnap our citizens, we're not gonna give you what we want. But unfortunately right now, um, the two Michaels and actually I should say a number of other Canadians yeah. that are also in detention mm-hmm. are paying the price.
1: Yeah, but it, it's it's more than that. I mean, they've they've done what they've done in Hong Kong with impunity. And there are a lot of people who are holding their breath uh, for them to invade Taiwan. Philip? Well,
4: I, I, luckily, I, I personally don't think we're, we're going to get there. Uh, we still have to realize that we, the United States remains the world's preeminent military power and china is nonetheless uh, confronted with that reality and i don't think there's any evidence yet that the the united states is backing down or or thinking of backing down against china in any meaningful way i think the situation we have is as a relatively small power with relatively little influence in global affairs and we're up against again the the second largest power in the world Uh, and it is you know just sticking a knife into us and seeing what how long we can resist. Um, so in our case, I think it's, it's a particular warning to every other medium-sized power. And we see this, uh, Australia is dealing with the same type of, of, of question. New Zealand is dealing with the same type of question. Japan, others. How do you deal with uh, a state that is using these tactics? And it is not an easy one for us to to solve as a smaller power that that doesn't have the influence of our American neighbor.
1: Well, Australia, I would say, uh, is tougher than we are. Mel, do you agree? Um, No,
2: I I don't, actually. I I think they may have a more overt, uh, tactical approach to dealing with uh, China. And I come back to something that uh, Professor Carvin said, which is, that uh, we need a China strategy. And right now, we are dealing with these uh, episodically. And what we need is a way of linking all of these things together. And uh, back to your original question, there is a link. Uh, We need to have a strategy for dealing with uh, a a dangerous uh, relationship.
1: Okay, we are just about out of time. I'm going to give everybody uh, 20 seconds to wrap things up. Uh, Dr. Lagasse, you can go first.
4: Uh, I would simply reiterate the the, the point at the beginning. I I really hope that the the parties are able to come to a compromise here as opposed to bringing this before the courts. Um, It it would be a terrible precedent on a number of levels if these documents were uh, released without any kind of protection around them. On the other hand... It would also be a terrible precedent if national security dictated in an absolute fashion what the legislature is able to see.
1: Dr. Carvin?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo that. Uh, but also, you know, I do welcome Parliament paying more attention to foreign affairs. I actually think this is welcome. For too long, our MPs have kind of ignored all these foreign policy questions. To have to, to somehow find a way to grant them access to more information in a safe and Uh, secure way, I think would be a good thing. And hopefully that will be one outcome of this.
2: And last word to Mel Kapp. Um, Look, I I think that uh, the fundamental issue here is not about the conflict between Parliament and the government. It's about national security and international relations. And And as Stephanie just said, we need to have parliamentarians who care about international relations and who care about national security. We have far too long... Uh, taken out for granted, and it's a very, it is a fundamental role of government. Protect Canadians.
1: Right. That is all the time we have. Thank you so much, Mel Cap, Dr. Stephanie Carvin, and Dr. Philippe Lagasse. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. And that's all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. It's unprecedented. The Liberal government has taken the Speaker of the House of Commons, a fellow Liberal, to court over a dispute about disclosing documents about the firing of two scientists at Canada's highest security virology lab in Winnipeg. Anthony Rota, he's the speaker, has indicated his intention to ask the federal court to strike down the Trudeau government's bid to prevent members of parliament from accessing the documents in question. So why were these two scientists fired? That's what everyone wants to know. The Globe and Mail is reporting that the cause was, quote, transferring some of our intellectual property to China. Uh, stealing might be a better word. And we're talking about viruses here. And whatever may have been taken reportedly went to that lab in Wuhan, the one at the center of the lab leak theory, of the origin of the pandemic that is now being investigated seriously. So, I would like to hear from you is national security a good excuse not even to let our elected members of parliament see this information? 416 360 toll free one Seven forty four, seven forty, and now I'm joined by Mel Cap, former clerk of the Privy Council and a distinguished fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the U of T, and Dr. Stephanie Carvin, a national security expert and assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University. And Dr. Philippe Lagasse, Associate Professor of International Affairs and the Barton Chair at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Those academic titles are just so long. Welcome, everybody. Hey, thanks for having us on. Okay, let us begin with Mel Cap. So what is your reaction, I mean, uh, at this kind of a move?
2: Um, I think the uh, problem here is that the Uh, Speaker of the House of Commons is getting bad legal advice from his law clerk uh, at the table. Uh, The problem here is that Parliament has already passed legislation which uh, provides for the protection of secrets against any, and here I'm going to quote from the legislation, body with the jurisdiction to compel the production of information, House of Commons. And they pass a motion which says, but give us the documents anyway. Was is this about the rule of law or is this about the rule of man? And Anthony Rhoda fancies himself being very important, and he is, but he can't override the law. Uh,
1: Dr. Lagasse, I mean, uh, you know, there is obviously national security at play here, but, you know, Parliament, uh, they can get information that they keep secret, that they get in camera.
4: Uh, right, and I'm going to disagree with Mel. We usually agree on everything.
1: Okay. Uh, but on,
4: on this one, I, I fundamentally disagree. Uh, a statute is a statute. It's a law passed by Parliament. But parliamentary privilege is a constitutional power of the legislature, and that overrides any individual statute that uh, is in play. So the, the power to compel documents as a constitutional power of Parliament supersedes any individual statute that may uh, Parliament may have passed. So in that sense, formally speaking, uh, I'm going to agree that the, the Speaker is correct that the Houses of Parliament can can compel this evidence. Now, that's entirely separate and distinct from the question of whether they should, right? And I think that's uh, the more substantive discussion is what practices are in place and, and customs that we have in place to ensure that any information is handled properly. Uh, and you don't end up in a situation where you have national security information uh, just out in public. Uh, so there I would agree, uh, with your, the other part of your question, which is, uh, are we talking about in camera sessions? Are we talking about some other type of compromise like the national security uh, and intelligence committee parliamentarians? So, uh, I think we've got two separate issues here.
1: Uh, Dr. Carvin, what do you think? Do you agree with either of them? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I feel like I'm the referee here and, uh,
3: you know, considering what's happening in the hockey game. So I'm not sure that's a great place to be. Um, but the, uh, you know, I think my head is with Phil. My heart is probably with Mel Tapp. Um My view is that, you know, it comes down to this. And, and Phil actually got to this when, when he said, you know, just just because you can do something, and yeah, they can do something, it, it doesn't mean it's a good idea. You know, the way I tried to explain it, I guess, online is that, you know, I can hit myself in the head with a frying pan. That's totally <coughs> legal. It doesn't mean it's a good idea. Right. And I mean, there's a lot of questions here. Um, We don't have a robust national security culture. And so, you know, I would love, you know, if if the outcome of this is somehow we, you know, find ways for national security, you know, for, for MPs to have access to classified information with the right procedures, the right processes, then that's great. But right now we don't have any of those. And, you know, when you read intel. You know, you can't just read intelligence and, and know everything about a situation. Intelligence has certain language. It has certain concepts. It has certain um, protections about it, and in context. And I worry that you know, if an MP just sits down, reads it, and thinks they have a hundred percent clear picture of what happened, that's actually usually not the case. So you know, no offense to Garnet Genius, but I don't think he's ever had security clearance, and I'm not sure he actually knows how to read intelligence. It would be like you or I reading an article in a medical journal and suddenly thinking we could perform open-heart surgery. It's just not going to happen.
1: Well, it's, it's, I guess you're raising the question of what they would do with that information. Uh, Mel, I mean, doesn't anybody have the right to know here, especially if something dangerous happened? We're talking about viruses being transferred. and And also in the absence of information, there's all kinds of wild theories around? Well, let me
2: th- first of all, I, I uh, do disagree with uh, uh, my friend Philippe Lagasse, and I uh, do agree with my friend Stephanie Carvin. Um, the, the, uh, the question of whether this should proceed or not depends on what the nature of the information is, and the Attorney General of Canada has said this information is very sensitive, and potentially injurious to the security of the country. Now, the motion in the House says, well, don't worry about it. We'll let the law clerk look at it, and he'll make a judgment about whether it's, uh, you know, something that should be public or not. Well, how is he going to put any context on this? Just as Stephanie was saying, uh, this this is not a, a judgment he's trained to bring, and he doesn't see the whole picture. So just imagine two scenarios. One is that the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, uh, New Zealand had provided us with information about these two people that led us to go and get rid of them and send them back and take them out of the lab. Uh, Do we want that information out there? Nobody will ever give us information again. We will violate the entente we have with the other four of the five eyes that share intelligence. Or consider the possibility that somebody in the Wuhan Institute of Virology provided us with information about these two people. And if we made that public, it may not look like it's going to affect national security, but it might affect international relations, which is another criterion. And it might lead to those people actually being incarcerated or worse in, uh, the, in China. So we want to protect this information.
1: Right. Um, and uh, Dr. Carvin, I mean, what what do you think is is uh, the fact that there is so much fairly wild speculation about what this is actually about, potentially more damaging than knowing?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is a real consideration. I mean, you know, we've seen it in court, you know, in all these kind of uh, spy dramas that there's so much effort to try and protect sources and methods. Right. And often we have seen, for example, um, the you know, federal government would rather rather drop a case than have it proceed to court if they think that sensitive information or a, like or a source could be exposed. They would rather, you know, drop criminal charges than have that information get out there. So it is, yeah, we're dealing with real stuff. Now that being said, I have to say there's another there's a third issue here that I would raise, which is that, you know, one of the problems we're having is that the committees that are investigating this aren't, you know, the liberals are kind of trashing them, they're kind of trying to shut them all down, and and they're being obstinate, the, you know, the conservatives are kind of using this as a platform to, you know, harken back to ancient constitutional values, which, yes, exist, but, you know, again, I just think everyone here involved has kind of lost sight at what's at stake, and that really concerns me, is that, you know, again, maybe if, you know, the liberals have been taking these committees a little bit more seriously, or if the Conservatives weren't kind of grandstanding, we wouldn't be in this situation where we might be in a constitutional crisis because of of this situation.
1: I mean, uh, Dr. Lagasse, I mean, the the wildest uh, connection that I've heard made or speculated on is that somehow what happened between our lab in Manitoba and uh, the lab in Wuhan may have led to The leak if that's what happens, which uh, is, uh, it's wild. I
4: I really, I'm not in any position to comment on that, I don't think any of us are, until we actually see what's in uh, the information, which hopefully we won't
2: as members (laughs) of the public.
4: Um, You know, as per what my two colleagues are saying, this is a matter that has to be studied and understood by experts in these areas. And which is why I agree with them that this should not be something that's simply disclosed uh, to committees uh, or the standing committees as they exist without any other protections and, and principles put in place to ensure that this information is kept confidential uh, and protected. Now, that being said, we, you know, we have to understand the context we're, that we're in. I think Stephanie is also correct in the fact that um, we're dealing here with constitutional hardball on the part of all parties involved. And the pandemic has made the the interactions in a parliamentary setting especially bad in a minority parliament. Uh, both sides of this debate have been abusing powers that they have uh, for political ends. So, you know, the well has been poisoned in so many different ways here that we're, we're leading up to a situation where we're having a confrontation over a fundamental constitutional principle. Namely, does the executive, does the government get to decide how it's held to account or not? And that, the problem is, for somebody like myself, I can't endorse that proposition, even if I accept that in this individual case, this information probably shouldn't be disclosed. Uh, but as uh, as Stephanie was saying, this has now been quote-unquote weaponized, right? These notions are now being pushed to the brink by both sides involved. And I, I really hope that there is some cooling of heads here so that we can arrive at a reasonable compromise uh, and, and be aware of the fact that whatever reasonable compromise we come up with also has to be in place for future minority parliaments where the opposition does have the constitutional powers of parliament at its disposal. Because we have to remember that the last time we had something like this, it was the conservatives who were in power, and it was the opposition liberals and opposition NDP who were using these powers against them. So, you know, whenever—it's not a question of which party or whatnot. It's a a fundamental question of how do we reconcile these confrontations between parliament and the government over matters of national security in a way that uh, respects both national security secrets and the constitutional powers of parliament.
1: We've got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to broaden this discussion a little bit and talk about our relations with China in a little more general way when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer squad. And today we have a special guest panelist, Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs and the author of seven books. He joins CARP's David Kravitz. They are both very expert on demographic trends. But before we get to that, we need to talk about the latest nursing home outbreak at the Tansley Woods Long-Term Care Home. Last night, we learned that one resident tragically died, despite the very high vaccination rate among residents. Now, when the outbreak started on June the 28th, there were only three cases. By this weekend, 16 residents and one staff member were infected with the Delta variant. And here's what the premier had to say.
2: The only way it's coming in is, is unfortunately, through people from the outside. And, you know, some, I, I love the PSWs. We, we need to see more PSWs get vaccinated. Uh, they really do. And they're the best people in the world. I know there's some hesitancy, but we just can't risk it with our, our seniors right now. I know one one person uh, there and uh, actually two staff, I understand, and some residents. But folks, if you work at a long-term care, uh, we we haven't made it mandatory. I don't believe in forcing vaccines on everyone. But think of the people you're taking care of. Think of their families. Think of your families. Please, I beg you, please get vaccinated.
1: Well, uh, there you go. Let us start there. I'd like to welcome David Kravit and Daryl Bricker. Hi, guys.
5: Hi, Libby. Hello, Daryl. Hello.
1: Okay, let's start with Daryl. The premier said he doesn't believe in making it mandatory, but there are places around the world where it is mandatory for long-term care workers. What do you think?
6: Well, it is one of those things that I think if you went out and you asked Canadians whether or not people who were going into long-term care facilities, particularly workers, should be vaccinated or be required to be vaccinated, I don't think you'd have a hard time finding the vast majority of Canadians agreeing with that. Uh, so I understand that, you know, the Premier's trying to make it work on a voluntary basis, but at some point, if he decided to go uh, a little bit more directly at this problem by making it mandatory, uh, there wouldn't be a lot of pushback.
1: Hmm. David?
6: Well, we don't
5: have to look around the world for places. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We forget whether it was New Brunswick or Nova Scotia, that policy was no jab, no job. Uh, you had to be vaccinated if you were going to work in a long-term care home. I have no way of understanding uh, the premier's hesitancy on this. Um, if you make it a condition of it being employed inside the home, I understand if you don't want to compel people to get Vaccinated as part of their decisions about their life, but you certainly could make it condition. You know, employment in the home is conditional upon being uh, protected, being vaccinated.
1: I I think uh, is it possible? I mean, there's a shortage of LTC workers, PSWs anyway. Um, is it is it just Daryl because they're afraid that they'll lose people?
6: Well, you know, I haven't done a survey of the long term care workers, and I actually don't know how many of them actually not been vaccinated. I mean, uh, those would be some interesting statistics to get a hold of. But yeah, I'm sure all of these things are, are part of the, the conversation about why or why not having people uh, um, uh, required to uh, uh, to, be, to be vaccinated in order to go into those facilities. Well,
1: uh, the, the number is in the 80% range, uh, and I think that's just for one shot. At this particular home, the number was 86%. And all but one resident was vaccinated. We don't know if that's the resident who passed away. So, you know, I think it's pretty clear to me that this population we know is, is vulnerable because the one thing that everybody's been touting, David, is that, okay, um, the vaccination rate is great. And even if you get it, you, it won't be serious. But, you know, there's nothing more serious than dying.
5: Oh, for sure, and I think it would be—it'll be important to know whether that uh, person that uh, tragically passed away was or was not vaccinated. There is some uh, very early evidence that a uh, full course of vaccines um, does protect uh, against the Delta variant in terms of the seriousness of it. If you do get it, there's some early indications. I was just reading up on this this morning from Israel that the they're they're of two minds. On the one hand, they're saying, well, if you get vaccinated, you're only going to be uh, stricken with the Delta in a mild form. They're waiting for more evidence on that, so it's not necessarily conclusive yet. But clearly, if you're not vaccinated at all, or if you're allowing people to come in who are not vaccinated, you're significantly increasing the risk. So, uh, you know, if you don't have to do that, why would you Why would you
1: do that? You know, when it comes to long-term care, I've talked to people working in the sector, some of the heads of the organizations, and they say, oh, the government is bringing in a new regime where you have to show proof of vaccination, and if you uh, are not vaccinated, you have to, and I'm putting this in air quotes, undergo education. Uh, And they're saying, oh, that's better than forcing people. But, you know, again, I, I wonder. Uh, Daryl, and, and teachers, teachers who have very, very powerful unions, they are required to have nine vaccinations before they can teach in Ontario.
6: Yeah, well, I think you know, as we we go further down the, uh, or actually further up the curve in terms of the percentage of people uh, being vaccinated, the uh, the groups that aren't will stand out more and more, and that's when you're going to start having things like, for example, parents who were uh, have their children going to schools asking the question about teachers. So at the moment, we're still in that that space in terms of the combination between demand and supply, in which supply has not outstripped demand. So there's more people wanting to be vaccinated at the moment than we have supply available, but that's going to be diminishing as we get uh, into the fall. Uh, and you're going to see that the, the the actual level of compliance is going to be quite high um, and- among the Canadian population based on surveys. So we're going to get down to a relatively minor segment of the population um, that are will choose not to be vaccinated. And then the question is, How much vulnerability do they create for society, particularly if they're, say, for example, long-term care workers, or they work in hospitals, or they, you know, work in the education system, or they, say, you know, maybe they're servers in restaurants or whatever. Um, How much vulnerability is associated with that? But um, at the moment, we're still in the situation which we're trying to get people vaccinated.
1: Uh, Daryl, you know, the other question that this begs is is what to do in workplaces. And I'm thinking that employers are kind of between a rock and a hard place because, on the one hand, uh, they're, they're vulnerable to certain legal challenges if they make it mandatory. And, on the other hand, they're required to provide a safe workplace.
6: Yeah, they are. But what, what ends up happening is that your customers, if you're in a business situation, will start responding. Um, and, uh, uh, and the way that they'll respond is if they feel unsafe in your establishment, they won't come in. So, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, at that point, then we have to start having some interesting conversations about the difference between rights and, uh, and obligations. And uh, particularly when it comes to uh, to people in the workplace, you know your coworkers, your your customers, people that you're going to be coming into contact with. And uh, I think that uh, one of the obligations that they will have is that you be safe. So if somebody you know obstinately chooses not to be safe, well then that becomes a very interesting test case, and we'll see where it goes. Uh
1: yeah, David. I mean, it's it's a whole big can of worms. Well, also, that, and I agree
5: completely with what Daryl just said. But also, don't forget as we reach that. Um, point in the fall where we have that overwhelmingly the people are vaccinated, that's going to drive us back to the discussion of how good is the vaccine. If I have an unvaccinated worker, even a worker who can be shown to have, you know, being at risk at spreading something, and I have him or her turned loose in an unvaccinated population versus a largely vaccinated population, you know, what does that do to the risk um, so that that's a further compound, if you will, or a component, if you will, to the kind of dialogue that I think uh, Daryl very accurately says is, is coming our way.
1: And, and David, how do you see this dichotomy between what's required for people who go into a school and teach children and people who go into a long-term care home? Is this just another aspect of age, ageism?
5: No, I think I, I think that there there's a scientific fallback there actually that that uh, I find reasonable, and that is that we know that the vulnerability in a long-term care home is inherently higher because of the weaker uh, physical condition, the presence of comorbidities, the likelihood that the uh, infection with COVID is going to do much more serious damage. I mean, we had 43% that last count of Ontario deaths have been in nursing homes. We know that kids are much less susceptible, um, both to getting it and to getting it seriously. So the, the population that's on the receiving end is very different in a school than in a nursing home. And I think that, that is a factor that has to be uh, taken into account in looking at the data.
1: Right, but what I'm saying is that uh, we seem to be a lot keener on protecting the children than the oh, older I, people.
5: Well, sure. Of, of course, that is, that is uh, that is, uh, I, I guess, a function of ageism, but also it may be a function of numbers. There are far more kids in school than residents of uh, long-term care homes. So you're dealing with a population in the millions versus the tens of thousands.
1: Uh, Daryl, the premier also announced a a pay bump uh, or a continued pay bump for personal support workers. Uh, How do you see that?
6: Oh, smart move. Uh, I I don't uh, think that there will be anybody who objects to... uh uh, the personal care workers getting a, an increase in salary. The only criticism he might get is that whether three dollars is enough. Yeah. I think there's a general social consensus that our our, our seniors deserve quality care, and they, uh, the people who provide that care should be properly compensated. So I think that if he does get criticism, as I said, it will probably be as you know whether that's enough.
1: Yes, still with this, David, Andrea Horvath, the Ontario NDP leader, is in Ottawa today, and she's lobbying for four hours of care for people in long-term care. It's something that the government has promised and said they're working up to, but she wants national standards. Uh, is, you know, I, there doesn't seem to be um, there doesn't seem to be any zealousness about getting to this national standard.
5: There's very little there because it's the reason is that it's complicated to achieve. But it's great theater in the short run, so you get everybody saying yes, let's do it. But just look at the federal government it hasn't even gotten on track properly yet with, with consultations with the provinces on any national standards around long-term care, uh, let alone how many hours of care. The Ontario government said by twenty-four, twenty-five, it'll be four hours, but they won't come out with any. Uh, Terribly specific, you know, each year this is where they they sort of have, but not really. So it's the kind of thing that everybody can uh, plant their flag and be solidly in favor of it uh, as a good capital G thing, capital T, you know, everybody wants it, but go try and make it happen is another matter.
1: Daryl, your company did some very interesting research on the doctor-patient relationship and how much better outcomes are when there is a, an empathetic relationship. And also, we know that there's been a huge increase in virtual care over the pandemic. So how, how, how do you see that?
6: Well, yeah, I think that there is obviously technology is, is functional, but not perfect um anybody who's done zoom calls or even like conversations like we're having right now i mean we can get information across but that uh, that personal relationship is really difficult to build and the thing that we do know about vaccines for example people put an awful lot of confidence in what uh, their medical professionals tell them and if somebody's really nervous just simply having a Conversation with them on a Zoom call or you know by telephone is probably not going to be enough to get them over the hump. Um, so uh, the um, uh, the lack of an ability to have that face to face contact and reassurance I think is having some impact on this.
1: Uh huh. And do you see a solution?
6: Well, I think time. Uh, the, the, what, what's happening with the with the issue of vaccination? at the moment is that, as I said before, we're trying to match up supply and demand. Right now, demand is, is, is ahead of supply. Uh, and as we start to move through the course of the summer, what we're going to start seeing is that hesitancy is not people being anti-vax. In fact, the the, the true anti-vax population, people who are just absolutely opposed to any type of vaccination in Canada is, um, are less than 5%. So most of the hesitancy we see we see are people with reasonable questions that reasonable people would have about risk. Things like, you know, it was developed really rapidly. Um, I'm, you know, I, I don't have enough personal experience with it. I don't know what the long-term consequences are. So the ability to reassure people, particularly personally, as we come out of this, I think will help us get over some of these uh, some of these difficulties. But I think what happens when we have conversations about vaccination is we tend to focus on that most extreme element of, of people who are really absolutely opposed to vaccination, and not understand that the people that we're going to be running into as we get further through the summer are just people who need to be reassured and have their questions answered.
1: Mm-hmm. And David, overall, there has been a big increase in virtual care uh, among the Zoomer demographic as well. Uh, are people, ex- how, how is the acceptance of it? Do you think that most people are really anxious to get back and see their doctor in person or what?
5: I uh, I don't have any stats. It's partly uh, anecdotal, but partly what I look at in in the response we're getting from our audience, there's been a big uptake and acceptance of telehealth and virtual care. Remember, it solves a lot of mobility issues as well. Uh, if I can stay home and have a consultation with my doctor instead of having to. Uh, trudge to their office if it's in the winter or whatnot. It's a, it's an advantage. I think we're seeing, and this I do know statistically, a huge uptake in interest on the part of seniors in wearables and in other diagnostic technology where they can uh, transmit to their a physician vital health information and get diagnosis. And we're not far away from a time when that diagnosis is going to be delivered by AI and not even by the family physician. There's a big uptake uh, by the senior population on this. I just want to say one thing. And I hope, uh, I hope Daryl's company does more of this research, but I did, I do want to point out that in the front cover of the PDF of this very interesting and important research they did. Um, were seven, six or seven people in a photo on the front cover all looking at their phones, and all of them were young millennials. There wasn't one senior person represented in that mix, and I think that the seniors represent a much more influential population of patients with decades of experience and, uh, frankly, a lot of, uh, particularly the baby boomer part of it, a lot of... uh Skepticism, valid or invalid, about necessarily following the advice they get. And a lot of, you know, I'm in charge of my own wellness and, uh, I'll get a second and a third opinion and so forth. They're, they're gluttons for information. They're all over all the medical websites online. So they're already, the, the zoomers, if you will, are already changing the face of how primary care is being delivered. And I hope that in future studies, uh, it so expands this very important first step and does look at how um, seniors are reacting to all this because I think you'll find it's a little different than the people you spoke to first.
1: Daryl?
6: Well, I, I think we speak to, you know, one of the largest research companies in the world. We we speak to all sorts of people about all sorts of things. Maybe the visual image that was presented was a little off-putting, but uh, the truth is I, I, I happen to agree with uh, with what David said. I think that anybody who knows the statistics about the Canadian population in particular knows that we're headed for... a massive tsunami of older people in our population, um, and that um, understanding how uh, the older populations are going to be dealing with issues related to healthcare is is not going to just be a sort of a, you know one of those things that's uh, you know out there in you know old care homes or long term facilities or whatever. It's going to be something that's going to be front and center in our healthcare system, because not only there's going to be a lot of them, they're living a lot longer. Um, so we're, we're we're going to be facing a huge series of issues just related to demographic change that are going to put the uh, the, the seniors' agenda front and center in this country. Uh,
1: you know, one of the things that's kind of coming out of this uh, th- that I find very interesting it's it's about The use of the internet uh, to look at your health questions, and I remember, I don't remember how long ago it was, maybe a year or so ago, there was some big study that came out and said, like, do not consult Dr. Google, you will be misled, It's, it's really bad but if you go to reliable websites i mean my experience is it's not really bad and and david um older pe that's what older people are doing i mean you know we can navigate our way to a reliable website
5: i think it's i think it's a lot of both because uh, you know clearly you can get bad information and you can get good information i mean there are some way like google is very generalized patientslikeme dot com where you can zero in on your specific complaint and see all kinds of uh, uh health maintenance advice that, that that's pretty good. You can go on to Google and Google uh uh discount open heart surgery and get a thousand but <laughs> it's true I've done it. And so you you can get a lot of bad stuff. But but I think we have to distinguish and I, I think Daryl will 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 know this way better than me distinguish between perception and behavior and whether that behavior is necessarily correct or good. Um, the fact that the baby boomers are going online in droves looking for health information and that the family care, the first line provider, not necessarily the specialist has morphed from God in my grandfather's generation to supplier in today's generation Uh, RateMyDoctor.com You know, so they're looking for that info And they're going to find it And hopefully it'll be accurate And you're quite right There's a risk that some of it may not be accurate
1: Yeah, by the way That is one of the things I absolutely do not trust Is the Rate My Doctor stuff (laughs) Uh, um, Of course uh Daryl, one of the things that was pointed out in your research uh just in terms of empathy and the personal touch uh was about people going online and and being in chat rooms and and groups with patients who have a lot in common with them
6: yeah, and that's what we're finding that these are tools that can be used for more than just searching for information. they can be about making connections and and you know quite frankly, look at the world of online dating these days i mean. Uh, we, don't, we don't connect the way that we used to, and when people are in in situations in which they're seeking a bit of empathy, they're uh, you know they're they're looking for connections. They're looking for people who share similar issues, or in some instances, similar. Interests uh, going online is is a, is a really effective way of doing it. And you know, apropos of to what, what David was saying, we know in our research that the fastest uh, adapters these days, the, the the most extensive adaptation that's that's taking place in terms of uh, online activity, bigger take up these days, is actually among older people because the the younger population is is already there. Right. And one of the things that we saw a real acceleration was in, in over this period of time was things like online shopping. Ah, uh, people ordering from restaurants and 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 uh, yes. you know, getting yes. things into their homes in different ways than they used to be, and a an awful lot of them were seniors.
1: Yeah, because uh, there wasn't a lot of choice, and and I guess uh, which brings me to my next thing. Uh, so, seniors, I think, are more hesitant about. A lot of people are hesitant about re-entering the world, but but people who are really worried for their health. Are, are more so, and David, I'm sure that drives a lot of the online shopping and that, but um, what do you see? Do you think that, you know, people will just stride headlong in, into into our bright future, or there's uh, going to be a little bit of anxiety?
5: I think there's going to be a little bit of anxiety. I think the process will unfold um, maybe a little slower than we think, but I also think that no matter how good it is, how fast it is, People will take with them what they've learned and, you know, the vestiges of their experience here. We did a poll um, of our own readers at Zoomer Magazine, I think, Dick. It was conducted, the poll, and I think it included some card members. About But midway through, maybe several months ago, midway through this, where we could kind of see the, hopefully, the end coming. One of the questions was, what did you... How did this change you? What did you learn so far? And a number one answer was: I never realized how many things I could buy online, and I'm going to keep doing so because hmm. it's so convenient. It's not so much I'm afraid; I'm fearful of going back into that big box store. But you know what? By the time I drive there and park and haul the goods back to my car, and it's winter time. Let let uh, Amazon deliver it the next day. And well, so there's I've, going to be a lot of sticking with that habit, I'm afraid.
1: I, I've got to tell you, I'm I'm happy stores are reopening because I find online shopping is great if you know exactly what you want. Yes, it is. But yes. if you have to start returning things, it is a complete pain. Yeah, yeah.
5: It's not going to be all one or the other. What I'm saying is, though, they're going to they're going to bring with them some of the. New habits they formed and the new things they experienced, um, and they'll go back to some other components that uh, that they missed out on.
1: Daryl, I'm going to give the last word to you on the reentry and the older population.
6: Well, don't think of light switches; think of dimmers. So not everybody's going to do you know off or on it's going to be more like a dimmer switch where you're going to get some parts of the population in that are going to convince the next part of the population to come in the truth is when you take a look at the seniors in, in terms of their participation there's an awful lot of them that are actually quite comfortable being at home and aren't really anxious to get back out there and they're going to take a little bit more convincing than say for example people who want to go out to the you know the the, the the latest restaurant or the latest club or whatever so I think seniors are actually going to be a, a specific communications challenge for retailers and people operating uh, entertainment venues.
1: Okay, well, in the meantime, whatever your age, it's uh, hard to get a a patio reservation. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, David Kravitz and Daryl Bricker. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Libby. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this very mysterious situation that has led to an unprecedented court action. The liberal government suing one of their own, the Speaker of the House, who wants some documents about the fired scientists. We're going to drill down on that when we return.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.